Well, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. Good to see you today. Um, you know, hey, if you're new to Fellowship Greenville, whether in person or online, just echo what we said earlier when uh, about half of you weren't here when we started the service. But uh, we're glad you're worshiping with us today. And if you have questions about what a Fellowship Greenville church is all about, uh, we invite you to drop by our first-time guest uh, center out on the west end of the commons, and you'll find some friendly people there that can answer uh, your questions, and uh, I think they have a little gift bag for you. And uh, if you're checking us out online, go to www.fellowshipgreenville.org, and if you surf around a bit, you'll probably get most of your questions answered on our website. Now, one of the things that we do want you to know about us is that if you attend here on a regular basis, most often we'll be teaching our way through whole books of the Bible, and uh, we just finished up a series through the book of Ephesians, ended in December, and in February, we're going to be starting uh, a series on Judges and Ruth. But right now, we're doing a seven-week topical series on what we call our core values, which are the primary character qualities we see in the life of Jesus, and they're also the primary character qualities that Jesus wants to build into our lives. Because you see, if we're going to passionately pursue life and mission with Jesus, these seven values help us see more clearly what living as a follower of Jesus looks like practically in our daily lives. And those seven values are uh, enjoying God and loving others, understanding Scripture, depending on the Spirit, living in integrity, magnifying grace, and advancing the gospel. And we see all these character qualities in Jesus, and if we are to grow to be more like Jesus, we need to be growing in these seven areas as well. Now, last week, Matt Rexford did an amazing job unpacking enjoying God, and I love how he defined what it means for us to enjoy God. He said, at the heart of enjoying God is a heart that delights in who God is and the relationship we share with him. Enjoying God is delighting in who God is and the relationship that we share <clears throat> with him. And this morning, we're going to look at the second value, which is loving others. Now, by the way, um, in this series, we're not going to follow the exact order that I just showed you on the screen, mainly because of calendaring issues and because different speakers fought over which one they would get to teach. No, that's not true, but anyway, uh, today we're looking at loving others, and I'm going to look at two passages of Scripture, and I'm going to walk line by line through each one so we can unpack the full meaning of every phrase and really almost every word. And then we, uh, and in these two passages, we're going to look at, first of all, the great commandment, and then we're going to look at what Jesus calls the new commandment. So we're going to start with the great commandment, we're going to jump in. I'm going to go back to the passage that Matt looked at last week, and we'll do a little review, a little recap, and then I'll take it a little bit further. So turn with me to Mark chapter 12, and we'll begin in just a moment in verse 28. But as you're finding your way there, let me put a little plug in for re-engage. I'm curious how many of you have been through re-engage or you're currently signed up for re-engage. Put your hands up. Yeah, I, 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 lots and lots of people. We've probably had close to 400 or more people go through re-engage. Now, re-engage begins 
Uh, this Wednesday, uh, January 12th, it runs from 6.30 to 8.30. It's $50 a couple. Limited child care is available from birth uh, through fifth grade. You can register online at fellowshipgreenville.org, or you can stop by the next step table, which is out in the east end of the commons. And people have said, you know, they don't know east and west, but just figure it out. It's east end of the commons, and you can register at the next step table there. Um, you need to understand, though, that re-engage is for all marriages. It's not just for marriages where the red warning light on the dashboard is flashing. It's for all marriages because the goal of re-engage is to help you learn how to love each other the way that Jesus loves uh, you. And really, it's a discipleship course with marriage as the backdrop. In fact, I've heard lots of people say about re-engage, and they also say this about regen, but they say, this is the best discipleship course that I have ever been through, which makes sense, you understand, because as we grow in Jesus' kind of love for one another, we actually grow to be the kind of disciples that put Jesus on display in this dark world of ours. So re-engage starts Wednesday, 6.30 to 8.30, 50 bucks, sign up online or at the next step table, and it may be the best thing you could ever do for your marriage or for yourself. All right, we're in Mark chapter 12, we're at verse 28, and as we pick up in the Jesus story, um, Jesus' popularity has skyrocketed. Everywhere he went, large crowds were following him, and he's teaching people, and he's healing people, and he's preaching about the coming kingdom of God. He keeps hinting at the fact that something new was coming, something big was coming, and it's going to be so new and so big that it's literally going to replace the temple and the sacrificial system in the temple. It's going to replace the, the priesthood and the Old Testament laws. Now, he hadn't said that exactly like that out loud, but he's hinting at it. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, they're constantly following him, and they're constantly trying to trap him into saying something that will turn the crowds against him, and, and the best possible scenario was, would be that he gets arrested. So on one particular afternoon, they joined forces. They drew straws to see who would set the first trap. And here's what happened. This is all in Mark chapter 12. But first they tried to trap him with a political question about paying taxes to Caesar. And Jesus' answer is so good. It's so shrewd. I mean, he knows what they're up to. And he just says, hey, give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God what's God's, meaning give yourself to God. And the crowds just marvel at his wisdom. Well, then the Sadducees, they try to trap him with a theology question about an ancient law that says if a man dies, a married man dies, his brother or his nearest relative is to marry his wife, which sounds really uh, kind of strange today. Makes me glad I'm an only child, but uh, uh, I don't know. Karen may not be so excited about that. But anyway, but uh, in those days, widows were very, uh, they were vulnerable and this was God's way of caring for widows, and it was also God's way of keeping family property in the family for the man's descendants. And so the Sadducees come up with this ridiculous question, and they say, um, Jesus, let's say that there was this guy who had seven brothers, and this guy was married, and let's say that he dies, so his brother uh, marries his wife. And then let's say that he dies, and the next brother marries her, and he dies. And the same thing happens to brothers three, four, five, six, and seven. Now the question is, 
whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Whose wife will she be in heaven? Which is a ridiculous question. But it's even more ridiculous when you realize that the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. And that's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> it's an oldie, but it works every time. I mean, uh, and so again, Jesus' answer blows them away to the delight of the crowd. And then we come to the passage that Matt camped on last week, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he had answered them well, he asked Jesus, what commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And yeah, that is the great commandment, the most important commandment. Rabbis have been saying that for a long, long time. But the more difficult question is, uh, what exactly does it look like to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, the religious leaders had a textbook answer for that as well. The way that ancient Jews demonstrated their love for God was by keeping God's commandments, by obeying the laws, living according to the rules, the old covenant, which was um, this kind of uh, obey me and I'll bless you, disobey me and I'll curse you type of arrangement. But Jesus doesn't go there. Verse 31, he says, the second is this. And I was thinking, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what second? The lawyer asked for one, the most important one of all, not the most important ones of all. Jesus says, and the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Second, most important, as in almost as great uh, as the first, but not quite as great. Is that what we're talking about? Mm, no, not really. Uh, Matthew, who was there taking notes that day, recalls Jesus uh, saying, and the second is like it. The second is like it. Well, how much like it is it? Well, okay, so let's push pause for just a second here. This is the first time in recorded history that these two Old Testament statements were combined in this way, like as a pair, as a couplet. You see, the, the, the first one shows up in Deuteronomy, and the second is found in Leviticus. So putting these two commandments together like this is unique to Jesus. It is uh, original with Jesus. This was new. It was another one of those hints that something new, something big is coming. Most commentators understand Jesus to be saying there are actually two greatest commandments, or you could say one great commandments, <laughs> which sounds weird. Uh, but the second commandment wasn't second in importance. It was simply second in sequence. And the reason these scholars uh, interpret what Jesus says here in, that, in, 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 in this way is because of Matthew's phrase, the second is like it, like it. The point being, the command that comes second in sequence is equally as great or important as the first one. It was like it in magnitude and significance it's, it's like two sides of the same coin, and that coin being uh, having a personal relationship with God. Love God, love others. Now, if we go back to our, uh, our, our pair of core values, I would put it this way. The inner reality of loving God is enjoying God. The outer reality of loving God 
is loving others. The inner reality of loving God is enjoying God and delighting in who he is and our relationship with him. The outer reality of loving God is loving others. And Jesus is saying you can't have one without the other. There isn't one greatest commandment. There are two. <clears throat> and look at what Jesus says next. He says there, there is no other commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. And cross-referencing Matthew again, <clears throat> Matthew records Jesus is also saying, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So you see what Jesus has done. Jesus has just reduced the 613 laws of the old covenant down to two commandments, which are really one commandment, love God, love others. He's taken all of the Old Testament laws and he's reduced them to two, love God and love others. His point was unmistakable, and that is that love for God is best demonstrated and authenticated by loving others. So this one greatest commandments, <laughs> love God, love others, wasn't just, just, it wasn't just the greatest as in the most important. No, these two commands summarize every single command in the Jewish scriptures. All the Old Testament commandments, including the Big Ten, could be put under the categories love God supremely or love others sacrificially. Now, we don't have time to go into it uh, here, but for Jesus, loving your neighbor had no ethnic or geographical limits, which again is new because for the Jewish religious leaders, loving your neighbor meant loving your fellow Jews, but Jesus blew that out of the water was when he told the parable of the Good Samaritan because in that parable, he expanded neighbor beyond the borders of Israel. <clears throat> and for Jesus, loving your neighbor didn't just mean loving those who treat you nice. Um, it even meant loving your enemies, as we read in our CBR journal in Matthew 5 this past week. And love your enemies, that was new and that was big, and that was radical. Now, Jim gave me a copy of a part of a chapter in a book he's reading entitled Bullies and Saints. It's by a guy named John Dixon, and uh, I don't know whether I should uh, recommend it to you or not. Jim reads all kinds of crazy stuff, but anyway, this part of the book was really good. But uh, Dixon says that Jesus' emphasis on love and mercy toward everyone, including enemies, was unique to Jesus. He says, love certainly does not feature in the best known moral codes of the pagan world in places like Babylon and Egypt, Greece and Rome. Universal love is not there in the Proverbs of Egypt, the Code of Hammurabi, the ethics of Plato and Aristotle, the 147 maxims of Delphi, or the wonderful moral discourses of Seneca, Epictetus, or Plutarch, and what we find instead in the Egyptian, Mesopotamian, and Greco-Roman moral teachings are things like justice, courage, wisdom, and moderation, the four cardinal virtues of Western antiquity. There is hardly a mention of love, mercy, and humility or non-retaliation. Now, you, I know you're thinking, yeah, but the Jews did because loving your neighbor as yourself comes from Le Leviticus 19, 18. It shows up in the Jewish scriptures, and that's true, 
<clears throat> but remember, it was confined to loving fellow Jews. More specifically, loving fellow Jews who were striving to obey Old Testament law. So what Jesus says here in Matthew 12, it's new, it's big, it's radical, and there was nothing else like it in the ancient world. So yeah, Jesus is about to do something big. He's about to do something new. And on the night before the new will come, the new that will do away with the temple and the sacrificial system and the priest and law keeping in order to earn the favor of God, Jesus, on that night before the new dawns, he gives his disciples a new commandment, a new commandment that will demonstrate and authenticate that those who follow him after he, he is gone are truly his disciples. <clears throat> now, turn with me to John chapter 13, where we move from the great commandment to the new commandment. <clears throat> Jesus is with his disciples in this upstairs room of, some, uh, of someone's house, and they have gathered at night to observe a last Passover supper before he gives his life to save us from our sins. And he's gone around the room that night. He's washed all of the disciples' feet. And uh, Judas, the betrayer, has left the room to arrange for Jesus' arrest. And after Judas is gone, the very first thing that Jesus says to his disciples is this, John 13, 34, he says, a new commandment I give you. Now again, you gotta put yourself in the place of all these guys in the room, a new commandment. I mean, as Jews, they already had 613, which had kept them busy all their lives. And besides, Jesus had already reduced the 613 down to two, love God, love others, which was really one, the great commandment. So why add another one? He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. So Jesus takes the word love, which is a noun, as in what the world needs now is love, sweet love, and he made it a verb, as in, like Matt talked about last week, I love french fries. But here, Jesus uses the imperative form of the verb, and makes love a command. Imperatives are commands. As in, well, just imagine Jesus as a marriage counselor. As in, okay, you guys need to stop arguing, go home, and love each other. That kind of thing. And, uh, and that, that's not what re-engage is about, by the way. It's, it's, it's more in-depth than just than that. But. So Jesus is not saying, feel something, even though most often love isn't without affectionate feelings. He's saying, do something. Now, by the way, sometimes in counseling situations, someone will say that uh, they don't have any feelings of affection for their spouse anymore and that the love that they once felt has died, it's gone, and they're left with no alternative uh, but to end the marriage. And sometimes when I counsel people like that, I'll tell them, look, if you'll do exactly what I tell you, uh, I, I, I can almost guarantee you that within a month you'll begin to feel those feelings of affection again. And so what I tell them is, number one, each day write down three things you would do for your spouse if you were in love with him or her. And then each day do those three things. Simple as that. No secret formula. It's just the age-old truth that those who do loving things have loving feelings. Uh, years ago, the University of Utah did an interesting study on healthy couples, couples who rated their relationship 
high on the romance scale after 10 years of marriage, and they found that in those marriages, there were many small, specific, positive, caring actions being done for the other person, like sharing chores and helping with the dishes and watching a game together or watching a Hallmark movie together. You know, I just put that one in there, but uh, filling her car up with gas, uh, bringing her flowers. Tony Campola tells a story of a man who uh, took this advice to heart and decided that he would do something to make some changes in his life. And the man said, you know, I usually leave the factory and I'm smelly and I'm dirty, but I decided if I really love my wife, I would clean up before I saw her again. So uh, I stopped by the Y and I showered and I shaved and on the way home, I, I, I stopped by a florist and I picked her up some flowers. He said, I usually go in the back door and get a beer out of the refrigerator and go to the family room and, and watch TV until supper, but you know, because I wanted to do what a lover would do, I, I went to the front door and I rang the doorbell and I waited for my wife to answer. And when she opened the door, I held out the flowers and I said, for you, honey, I love you. And, the, and, 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 and she looked at the flowers and then at me and she burst into tears. And she said, I've had a terrible day. She sat right down there in the door frame. He's still outside. I've had a terrible day. Josh uh, broke his leg and I had to take him to the hospital. And no sooner did I get home from the hospital, your mother called and says, she's coming for two weeks. And I tried to do the wash and the washing machine broke down and flooded the floor. And now, and now look at you. You have come home drunk. <laughs> So guys, if you start this, remember it may take your wife some time to get used to the change. <laughs> the men, when the Bible tells us to love our wives, it's telling us to do the things that lovers do. But then begin with feelings, feelings follow doing. But all that said, that's not really what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about doing love, whether you have feelings or not. And certainly not doing love, hoping that you get some benefit as a result of the doing. Now he says, he says the new commandment is love one another. But that's not new, because that's Leviticus 19, 18. It used the verb form of the love when, of love when Moses wrote, love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus isn't through. He goes a step further. He says, love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another just as I have loved. That's, that was new, that was big, that was world changing, that's why it was said of the early followers of Jesus that they turned the world upside down. They got it right. And if the church could get it right, it might happen again. The problem with the church in this country today and for, for years now, the world hears more about our rules than it sees our love. The world hears more about our rules than it sees about our love. Now, by the way, the new commandment even trumps the golden rule, like do, do for others what you want them to do for you. That's good, but that can be self-focused if you, because if you do something for someone hoping to get something good in return, that's, that's really about you. It's not really about them. Jesus says, do for others as I have done for you, and that takes the golden rule to a whole new 
level. Do for others as I have done for you. Now, when we hear that, what do we think of? We immediately think about the cross. But as his disciples were sitting around the Passover table that night, they didn't think about the cross. They thought about the three-year journey that they had had with Jesus. Do for others as I have done for you over the last three years. The cross is not even in, in sight. And in that moment, Jesus could have gone around the room from person to person, and maybe he did and nobody wrote it down, but he could have paused at this moment when he said, love others as I have loved you, and he could have said to Matthew, hey, Matthew, you remember when we met? Yes, sir. Uh, Do you remember what you were doing? Yes, sir. Say it out loud. Uh, Well, I was a tax collector. And do you remember when we met? Do you remember what I said to you? Yes, sir, you invited me to follow you. And at that, Peter would have spoken up and said, I remember that, and I wasn't happy about it. In fact, none of us were happy about it because if Matthew followed, up, followed you and he hung out and we hung out with him, it would be very embarrassing. And Jesus is like, Matthew, remember where we went after I asked you to follow me? And Matthew would have said, yes, sir, uh, we went to my house and you had dinner with a bunch of my tax collector friends. And Peter's like, oh, yeah, I definitely remember that. And Matthew, so Jesus looked at Matthew and he says, Matthew, for the rest of your life, the grace that I extended to you that day, I want you to extend to every single person you meet for the rest of your life. Nathaniel, yes, sir. Do uh, you remember when we met? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, do you remember what you said about my hometown and my parents and my family and my, my friends? Like you were like, Nazareth? Nazareth? What good could come out of Nazareth? Do you remember that, Nathaniel? Uh, yes, sir. Do you remember how I responded to you? Yes, sir. You invited me to be one of your closest followers. That's right, Nathaniel. Listen, I want you to extend that same kind of grace and that same kind of acceptance to everyone you meet, regardless of what they say about you or how they treat you. Peter, do you remember that time when you had your best moment and you confessed that I was the Christ, the Son of the living God, but not long after that you tried, you opposed me and tried to talk me out of following my Father's will for my life, and I had to rebuke you, and I said, get behind me, Satan. Do you remember that? Yes, sir. Do you remember? How did I treat you after that? Well, you took me up on a high mountain and with James and John, and we all got to see a glimpse of your glory. We got to see who you really are. Peter, I want you to extend that kind of grace to others when they oppose what I'm doing in the world. And guys, you remember that time we were in a boat and we were out on the Sea of Galilee and that terrible storm came up and your faith failed you? And I had to, I had to call you out about that? Yes, sir. Uh, how did I treat you after that? And John spoke up and said, well, you didn't give up on us. And Jesus said, that's right. That's how I, 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 want, I, I want you to treat each other. I want you to treat all the people that you're ever going to meet, all the people that you're going to disciple, believers whose faith might be weak and it needs shoring up. Guys, don't give up on them either. And you know what else he could have said? 
That night at the Passover meal, he could have said, and guys, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because two days from now, three days from now, four days from now, I'm going to take this whole thing to a whole nother level. <clears throat> and I want you to remember this night. Because going forward, your number one responsibility is to love other people <clears throat> the way that I have loved you and I am about to love you. Because you see, by this, by this one thing, all people will know you are my disciples if you have this kind of love for one another. They'll see that you are my disciples, not if you love me because I'm leaving. Not if you love God with all your heart because nobody can see inside your heart. No, only if you love one another as I have loved you will people know that your faith in me is the real deal. And Jesus is saying your love for me and your love for God will be demonstrated by how well you love each other and how well you love people who are difficult to love. And compared to the extremely complicated system of laws and rules that they had grown up with, I want you to think about this. The new commandment is much less complicated, isn't it? But, yeah, it's much more demanding. Let me put it this way. The new commandment is much less complicated than a religion of rules and rituals, but it is much more demanding. Now, let me see if I can illustrate why. And I would rather this not leave the room, okay? Is this just between us? I'm gonna let you in on something and nobody else needs to hear this, but here's the thing. If you give me a list of rules to follow, I will immediately look for the loopholes, right? In fact, the more rules you give me, the more potential there is for loopholes. And it's not, it's not just me, it's not just me. If I give you a list of rules, I bet you're gonna look for loopholes as well. Now, if you're a parent and you've parented through the middle and high school years, you get this, right? But mom, you, you told me to clean my room, but you didn't tell me when I had to have my room cleaned by, and I know it's not clean right now, but I'm gonna do it. Uh, but dad, you said be home by 11. You didn't say where at home, and I know I didn't walk in the door till about 1 a.m., but we were sitting in the car in the driveway at 11. And dad, you said I couldn't play video games after 8.30, but you didn't say I couldn't play video games when I spend the night over at a friend's house and we stay up really late at night. Let's see, dad, here's the deal. You're gonna have to spell, spell this out. You're gonna have to give me the fine print whenever you tell me to do something because mom, dad, I'm 12 years old, I'm 17 years old, and if you give me a rule, I'm gonna look for a loophole because where there are lots of rules, there are lots of loopholes around those rules. In fact, it's worse than that. Now, this is the part I really don't want you to go out here and talk about. But when it comes to all the rules in the Bible, people are always looking for loopholes and wiggle room around those rules. That's why people like me get questions like this all the time. And I bet you've asked this question or some question like this. Charlie, what does the Bible say about X? Is X a sin? Because I want to do X, and if the Bible doesn't say specifically that X is wrong, then is it okay to do X? Is, you, you follow what I'm saying here? Like, what does the Bible say about X? Is X a sin? And what's behind questions like that is this attitude, this posture. This is what I want to do, but I don't want to do anything that God is absolutely against. 
So if he doesn't specifically say that X is wrong, then I'm okay to do it, right? Now, if you hold to a Bible-based religion of rules and rituals, you'll be tempted to look for loopholes, and you'll find loopholes, and you'll find some wiggle room because if the Bible doesn't specifically say that something is wrong, then you tell yourself they're free to do it. Listen, Jesus walked into a religious environment where the religious leaders were professional loophole creators. The religious leaders created a sophisticated system of loopholes that enabled them uh, to, uh, to get around the most inconvenient demands of the law. And their hypocrisy was evident to everybody, and it drove people away from the very God who had created them to worship him. Now, here's the, here's the deal. The new commandment closes all the loopholes because there's just one command. With lots of rules, there are lots of loopholes. With one commandment, there's no Loopholes, there's no wiggle room. See, the question for the Jewish people was, what is the law required? The question for Bible-based rule-oriented religion is, what does the Bible require? The question for followers of Jesus who take Jesus' new commandment seriously is, what does love require of me? What does a Jesus kind of love require of me? And here's something that our middle school students and our high school students and our college students need to know. Really, it's something we all need to know. It's something that needs to become more foundational in the teaching of the church, and that is this. The majority of New Testament imperatives are simply applications of the new commandment. The majority of New Testament imperatives are simply applications of the new commandment. In other words, the New Testament is not full of a bunch of rules. The New Testament is full of one rule with dozens and dozens of application. There's one command, love others just as I have loved you. And everything else is explanation. Everything else is application. Everything else gives us examples, illustrations of what loving others the way Jesus loves you, what it looks like. Hear me. Paul, Peter, James, and John did not add to Jesus' new commandment. They applied it. And I hear what you're thinking. You're thinking, but Charlie, it, 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 it can't possibly be that simple. Oh, yeah, it's that simple. It's that simple. And I tell you who saw it. We missed it. The church misses it. Preachers miss it. But, but the apostle Paul, the first church planter, he didn't miss it. Because the Apostle Paul applied the new commandment that Jesus gave his disciples to everything. Now, let me give you a couple examples. He wrote this, and you've heard this before. In fact, we studied it in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And it comes at the end of what we call chapter 4 in Ephesians. But Paul writes, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. He said, well, Paul, do I have to forgive everybody? We're looking for a loophole. Uh, Paul says, yes, you have to forgive everybody. Oh, you mean because the Bible says so? Paul goes, what's the Bible? I don't, I don't I know what the Bible is. He said, uh, 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 so you say, okay, are we supposed to be kind and compassionate and, uh, and forgiving towards each other because you told us to be kind and compassionate and forgiving? Paul goes, are you kidding? No. Well, Paul, why, why should we be kind and compassionate? Paul says, let me just finish the statement, okay? Be kind and compassionate towards one another, forgiving each other, just as, 
Two of the most powerful words in the New Testament, and you find them all through Paul's letter, just as God in Christ forgave you. Here it is. Be kind and compassionate towards one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ forgave you. Why should I forgive? Because there's a rule that says I should forgive? No, I forgive because I've been forgiven. Why should I be patient? Why should I be patient with her? I mean, she's not patient with me. Why should I be kind? He's not kind to me. Show me a verse that tells me that I gotta be kind and patient to a person like that. Paul would say, what's the verse? Uh, well, that's right, you didn't have those either. But Paul would say, no, here's why you should be patient. Here's why you should be kind. He wrote this in 1 Corinthians 13, because love is patient, and love is kind, and love does not dishonor others. And here, by the way, is the core ingredient of the New Testament sexual ethic. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you never do anything to dishonor the other person, even if it's consensual. You say, okay, Charlie, well, show me a verse on that. No, it's not about a verse. Now, Paul does say in 1 Thessalonians 4, this is God's will for you that you abstain from sexual immorality. But what's the why? What's the why behind that exhortation? The why is because it's unloving. It's dishonoring to God and to the other person because you're using the other person for your own self-gratification, which is to dishonor them. You see, if you love the way Jesus loved you and gave his life for you, you honor her, you honor him, you honor his future wife, you honor her future husband, you honor uh, his or her future marriage, you honor that person's future children. Love is the mandate, love is the command, and there's no wiggle room, and there's no place to cheat, there's no loophole. So do you see how uncomplicated loving others the way Jesus loved you really is? It's uncomplicated. It's much less complicated, but yeah, it's more demanding. Paul goes on in what we call Ephesians 5, and he says this, as children loved by God, be imitators of God. It's like, we're like we read that and go, yikes, are you kidding me? How, how can I be an imitator of God? I mean, is that even possible? Paul says, yeah, it's possible. This is the way you imitate God. Walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself for you, just as. Where did Paul come up from with that? I mean, do you think he made it up? Or did he get it straight from Jesus? And then Paul goes on in Ephesians 5, and he talks about submitting to one another out of reverence for what Christ has done for us. And then he talks about relationships, uh, wives and husbands and children and parents and servants and masters and everything that he says about those relationships and how those people are supposed to relate to one another, it all boils down to the chapter heading, walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself for you. In every single relationship I find myself in, there's just one question, and that is, what does love require of me? What does the Jesus kind of love that I have experienced require of me? Now, years ago, Andy Stanley preached a message on love, and he summed it up like this, and I thought it was brilliant. Everything Andy says is brilliant, and a lot of things he says is brilliant. But anyway, Andy says, he says this, when unsure of what to say or do, ask what love requires of you. When unsure of what to say or do, ask 
What does love require of you? I think that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Now think, think about this. How does Jesus love you? Are there loopholes in Jesus' love for you? No, 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 there are no loopholes in the way Jesus loves you. He doesn't look for wiggle room around continuing to love you when you, when you fall short of his desire for you or when you fail him. Are you seeing this? Again, Paul does not give Christians a bunch of rules to follow. Paul gives Christians a bunch of applications for Jesus' new commandment, which was simple. As I have loved you, so also you're to love one another. That's it. That's it. And Jesus' first century followers got it. They got it while living in a culture that worshiped victory and strength in a culture where putting this whole idea of putting the needs of other people before your own, <laughs> at first that seemed so weak and unappealing. But this upside-down kingdom ethic that Jesus introduced here eventually became appealing. And then it became contagious. And then it turned their world upside down. And then it circled the globe. And we are here today because a group of first-century Christians got it right. Against all odds. Against all odds. I mean, these early Christians were stuck between the temple and the Roman Empire. They had no territory, no authority, no rights. And against all odds, they survived. But they didn't just survive, they thrived. Because they were fueled by one single idea, and that was love others just as I have loved you. And by that one thing, all the people who lived around them and came to know them could see there was something new and different in these disciples, these followers of Jesus, the way, and they came to know Jesus by watching their lives and by watching how they loved one another. You see, loving others was and still is the overarching ethic for Jesus' mission in the world. Listen, we gotta stop thinking about the Bible as, a rule, as our rule book for life. No, the Bible is not a book of rules to follow. The Bible is God's story of how we can come to know Jesus who died and rose again on our behalf to give us forgiveness and life. And the Jewish scriptures that come before him point forward to him. And the Christian scriptures in the New Testament after the Gospels all the letters, they all point back to him. The Bible is about Jesus, not about rules. And, and all of these commandments in the New Testament all point back to the new commandment. The new that has come because of Jesus' death and resurrection and his sending the Spirit to live inside of us. Again, the biggest problem, though, with the church in this country today is that people who don't know God hear more about our rules than they see our love in action. And that would change if we took Jesus' new commandment seriously. You see, loving others, it simply means 
loving people the way Jesus loves you. Just loving other people the way Jesus loves you. Why do you forgive people? Because you're forgiven. Why do you comfort people? Because Jesus comforts you. Why do you gently correct people? Because Jesus gently corrects you. You see, it's just much less complicated. More demanding, but there's no loopholes. I'm going to ask everybody to bow your head, and uh, we're going to continue in a moment of silent reflection. We started this last week, and we're going to do it through the series. But the question I would put to you is, as, you've, as we've opened God's Word, and you've been listening, has the Holy Spirit spoken to you in some way about how you might put loving others the way Jesus loves you into practice today, this week? Is there a relationship where loving a person or a group has kind of run off the rails and you've made excuses and you've justified it, but the Holy Spirit is saying, you need to do something about that. You need to make that right. How has God's Spirit spoken to you in our time together today? You might want to write it down.